Well, in two weeks, I'm going to commence a series through the book of Exodus as we look at how God delivered his people from bondage, from the land of slavery, and how it's a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. Uh, in, in the book of Exodus, we learn a lot about who God is, who we are, and how we can relate to God. So that's in two weeks. Um, next week, I'll, I'll be on vacation, and Jeff, who just went back with the children, he'll be preaching next week. And he's been in the very enviable position this past week of sitting under the teaching of Derek Thomas. Uh, and so that class has sort of stirred the waters of his soul. And so he's, he's very excited to bring a message to us from the book of Hebrews. Um, so please show up and, and uh, I know you'll be blessed by it. But as I was thinking of, of, of today's message as sort of a prologue to the book of Exodus, I, I had a... I had a little conundrum. What do I want to talk about as, as a prologue? After all, the book of Exodus is an important book. Exodus, the name comes from the Greek, and it was so named during the writing of what's known as the Septuagint, or the Greek Old Testament, way back in northern Africa in the city of Alexandria. Uh, they had a thriving Jewish community, and no one spoke Hebrew anymore, so they wrote the Bible in Greek. And when they came to this, the second book of the Bible, they said, well, the, the, word, the book is about the people leaving Egypt, so let's entitle the book Exodus, because the word Exodus refers to a mass departure of people. And so, of course, the Exodus, narrowly understood, refers to the actual departure of the people of Egypt, or from Egypt in, in chapter 12. But more broadly understood, Exodus refers to the entire time in which God is liberating his people from Egypt and essentially constituting them as their own nation. Because until they're their own nation, they're not really a people in a legal sense. God's deliverance of his people from Egypt is the single greatest redemptive act in the Old Testament. The exodus from Egypt is referred to time and time again throughout subsequent biblical literature. It is the repeated example. So even David, when he wants to think about God's reliability to save, he'll reflect back in the Psalms and talk about the exodus. The exodus is even a big deal in the New Testament. Did you know that? We learn about it in 1 Corinthians 10 where the exodus from Egypt serves as a picture of the liberation from sin and the bondage in slavery to sin that Christ affects for us. It's also mentioned in Jude as a warning. Hey, back in the day, Jesus saved some out of Egypt, but those who persisted in unbelief were destroyed. So again, the exodus event is a huge deal in Scripture, and it remains a huge deal for us. So I thought, all right, well, if we're going to talk about the Exodus in two weeks, then maybe today I should start at where it begins, in Egypt. And as you know, its beginning in Egypt is basically where the book of Genesis ends. In Genesis chapter 50, 
The people of Israel have moved down into Egypt. They've been given the choice land of Goshen, and, and they're settled in. And at the very end of the book, Joseph, the one who had been sold into slavery, but had arisen to the second in command of all of Egypt, he's old and he's dying. And at the very end of the book, he says, I'm dying. But one day, God will visit you here. And when he does, he'll leave you out of here. Take my bones with you when you go. And that's how the book ends. Joseph died clinging to a promise. So I decided, you know what? What I want to talk about today as a prologue is the promise to which Joseph was clinging when he died. And that promise, I believe, is most powerfully spelled out in our passage today, Genesis chapter 15. So please, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis 15. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Genesis chapter 15. And it begins by saying, after these things. Now what are the these things it's talking about? Well, it's talking about chapter 14. Basically, his nephew Lot had gone down to Gomorrah. Remember, Lot was thinking with worldly wisdom and he wanted to go to the city. The flashy lights, the neon signs, you know, the, the fast life. He thought it would be fun and glamorous. Well, it ended up not working out for him at all. And he ends up getting taken hostage. And so Abraham has to go and save him. So Abraham goes to battle against some, some rulers, some local gang lord thugs. And then at the end of it, the king of Sodom wants to give him some money as a, as a reward. And Abram's like, no way, man, you're a, you're, you're a wicked guy, and yours is a wicked city. I am not going to be associated with you. I am not going to let it be said that I got rich because of you. And Melchizedek then, the high priest of the Lord, blesses Abram. So it's after that took place then that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. 
but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Oh, man. Well, in 1951, Bill Bright had, had founded Campus Crusade the previous year in 1950, and in 1951, he published his Four Spiritual Laws. Many of you know them. Four Spiritual Laws. All right, what's the first one? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How many people have responded or have uttered those words with kind of a sardonic smile? A wonderful plan for your life. I sometimes wonder if, if we understand what God's wonderful plan means. God had a wonderful plan for Abram when he called him. In Genesis chapter 12, at the ripe old age of 75 years of age, his wonderful plan for Abram's life involved decades of wandering around, childishness, childlessness, fleeing, being terrified out of his mind in, in hostile territory. Wonderful plan. God does have a wonderful plan. But sometimes God's wonderful plan doesn't go according to our timeline, nor does it go about in our desired way. The promise that God gave to Abraham, first of all, in Genesis chapter 12, was very narrow in scope. It was very, it, basically, all the nations will be blessed in you. And see the, see, the, see the sand on the seashore? That's what your descendants will be like. Then a chapter later, in chapter 13, God again repeats the idea by saying, look to your north and south and east and west. Everything that your eyes lay upon, I'll give this land to you. But we can read these chapters in just a matter of, of minutes. But the time between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 is, is approximately eight or nine years. Abram's old and he's getting older. And so what happens here is he is approached by God. And God says, don't fear. Now, scholars are confused. They don't really know what Abram's afraid of. 
I think most likely he's, he's thinking of a counterattack because what had just happened in the uh, previous passage is he had outmaneuvered a few kings and, and conquered them, and he's probably afraid that they're going to re, regroup and reattack. But God says, I'm your shield. Don't worry, I'll protect you. And your reward will be very great. And at this, you can almost see Abram kind of scoff. These are his first recorded words to God. And, and what are they essentially? They're essentially a complaint. I'm going to make I'm going to be I'm going to bless you. What are you going to do for me? You haven't given me any kids. I'm I'm old. I'm going to die. And I have no one to leave my stuff to. I don't have any towns named after me. You know, I left my homeland. And, and all I got is this slave who I'm going to have to make my heir just to make sure that my, 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 my sheep won't just wander off when I die. What are you going to give me? You haven't given me a son. Man, I love that interchange. You want to know why? Because it shows that God understands when his people are frustrated and scared and uncertain. It's okay to voice your concerns to God. Abram begins by saying, Lord God. He's not making a complaint out of a posture of, of fist-shaking, you know, swearing. From a posture of faith, Lord, you said, but I haven't received. You said my descendants, eight years ago, you said my descendants would be like the sand of the seashore. And I'm older by the day. And nothing has changed. God understands that we have wobbly faith sometimes. And the reason I love Abram, Abraham, as he's later known, is he's a model of faith. But his life, if you look at it, is one of stumbling through life. He continually makes mistakes. He continually, he's a real person. Even now, even in this passage, when he says, when he, when he tells them, when, when God shows up and tells Abraham, You're, you will be blessed, how can I know for sure? Uh, how about, because I just told you. But God understands a wobbly faith. So what happens here is when when God shows up and says, you'll be blessed, and Abram says, what, what are you going to do? I don't have any descendants. You haven't given me a child. My wife's old. I'm old. I don't even have enough energy to have the process. Okay? And God takes him outside. And, and I love what he does here. He paints him a picture. We need pictures because pictures help us with trust. It's a... It, it's a pale analogy, I get it, but, um, and I was, I was telling Kay about it, I immediately thought about going to the grocery store. If you go to the grocery store, and imagine you go to the vegetable aisle, and, and none of the cans have labels on them. There's just metal, tinny cans stacked up, and yeah, there's a little label in front, peas, beans, you know, lima beans, corn, whatever, spinach. But all the cans are uniform and tinny glory nothing no pictures nothing i'm going to wager that some of you would 
would not really be confident that the label is reflected by what's going to be in the can because, you know, maybe the guy put them on the shelf in the wrong spot. Maybe, maybe some jokester came around and, you know, <laughs> shuffled the deck. Maybe, maybe JJ got loose in the store. <laughs> but he's not here, so that's good. No, it's okay. He's a good kid. Uh, <laughs> it's an amazing thing what having that label that wrapper around that can does for your confidence in what the contents of that can are, right? Is it possible that someone put the wrong label on the can? I guess, but we don't even concern ourselves with that. The picture instills confidence in the contents. So Abram gets led outside, and the Lord says, Look at the stars. What a picture. To really appreciate the stars, you got to get out of the city. I mean, you, you got to go out in the country where there's no ambient light. Have you ever done that and just seen? I mean, it's, it's awesome, awesome. If you can count these stars, and that's a rhetorical question because, of course, you can't. That's how many descendants you'll have. Now, what's an amazing thing is, is most of us understand that when God says your descendants will be like the sand of the seashore or the stars in heaven, that he's being hyperbolic. He's speaking hyperbolically that that you're going to have a lot of descendants. And and in one sense, that's true. I mean, you get to the book of Numbers, and the people of Israel are able to be numbered. So we know he's speaking hyperbolically. But did you know that eventually we get to the point where there is a massive throng that cannot be numbered? In Revelation 7, there's a throng from every nation that cannot be numbered. And what are they doing? They're worshiping the Lamb. And what do we learn in the book of Galatians? That everyone who believes is of of Abraham's seed. You and I, we get brought into this promise. So ultimately, what was spoken initially probably hyperbolically, God also intended to be understood eschatologically. So in the final analysis, according to Revelation, there's a throng in heaven that cannot be numbered. And you and I are a part of that. So God gives a picture. And Abram says, well, how can I know for sure? He wants epistemological certainty. And so God, once again, is gracious and he condescends. He could have given the smackdown, couldn't he? He could have said, he could have thundered. My word is sufficient for thee. But instead, he says, bring me some animals. And apparently, Abram knows exactly what to do. We know, through some great scholarship done in the 60s and 70s, we know about the the treaty-making customs of that day. And so what essentially would happen is, when a covenant was going to be made, they would take a bunch of animals, cut them in half, and make sort of a walkway between them. And the parties that were entering into the covenant would pass through those animals. And the gist was, if I break this covenant, may what just happened to these animals happen to me. They didn't joke around. Our culture, we talk about contracts. Contracts are are business arrangements. Contracts are transactional. You have, you know, a baseball player, he'll sign a contract with the team, and it's, you know, in, in a... In in exchange for X amount of dollars, he'll agree to play for them for X amount of years. At the conclusion of that agreement, it's all done. 
and everyone goes their separate ways. You enter into a contract to sell a house or to buy a house. You know, I'll sell you my house if you give me this amount of money or, or whatever. At the end of the transaction, you're done. A contract can be broken. There may be a fine to pay, but once it's broken, it's done. A covenant, though, establishes a relationship. It, it establishes an ongoing, permanent state of affairs where there are obligations, responsibilities, and benefits associated with that relationship. The most famous covenant that we have in our own experience is the marriage covenant. Yes, the marriage covenant can be broken. It's not a perfect analogy. But it's not just a transaction. It's not just a business arrangement that terminates upon the successful completion of, of, of X number of years or the attainment of some object. It's an ongoing relationship that doesn't conclude until one or both of the parties is dead. I've said before, Kay and my marriage, it's going to end with one or both of us dead. That's a covenant. And God establishes a covenant here with Abram. And Abram understands it immediately. That this is something that's significant. Even the book of Hebrews, which is, think of it as the Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on Genesis, on this incident, understands the significance. God gives two signs, two unchangeable signs, his word and his covenant, to convey the certainty of it. Now understand here, when God gives a covenant and he makes a covenant with Abram, he's not becoming serious about keeping his promise. He doesn't suddenly go from a position of, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't, to okay, I guess. You talked me into it. You twisted my arm, Abram, so now I'll go ahead and give it. No, his commitment is simply demonstrated. It's like what I've tried to tell people over the years. You know, she wants him to marry her. It's like, you know, if he's not committed to marry you, he's not committed to marry you. His commitment is demonstrated by the act of him marrying you. And don't let him talk you into, oh, that's just a piece of paper. That piece of paper means something. You know what it means? It means legal obligation. And this covenant means something too. You see, when both parties would walk through it, the animals, they were each taking upon themselves the obligations, the responsibilities, and the curse. And famously, who goes through these pieces right here? God. Does Abram go through the pieces? No. Only God. God graciously takes upon himself all the obligations, all the responsibilities, all the curse to bring this about. And Abram is simply, in this case, a passive party. Now this covenant is a huge deal. This is the covenant that undergirds the rest of history. We see in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 that the Abrahamic covenant is still in force. We who are saved find ourselves considered and reckoned as Abraham's offspring in Christ. Which is why both John the Baptist and Jesus can address Hebrew contemporaries of theirs and say, don't put your confidence that you count Abraham as a physical ancestor. God can raise up children from Abraham, children of Abraham from these stones. 
And Jesus flatly denies their connection to Abraham by saying, your father's the devil. You're a child of Abraham if you're a child by faith. And so this covenant is still in force. When the New Testament speaks of the old covenant that has been rendered obsolete and is passing away, it's not talking about this Abrahamic covenant. It's talking about the covenant that we're going to read about in several weeks in, in, in Exodus 19. The Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant. That's the covenant that was rendered obsolete according to the New Testament. This Abrahamic covenant is still in force and God is still bringing a people together. That is fantastic. Now, it's the promise then that Abraham holds on to, his son Isaac holds on to, his grandson Jacob holds on to, and his great-grandson Joseph dies in faith. But notice the word of assurance, if you want to call it that. Know for certain your descendants will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. For 400 years. God's promise takes time. God is not on our timetable. It's amazing in verse 11, it talks about how animals, birds of prey came down to devour the, the meat. Obviously, you just butchered a bunch of animals. There's blood and organs and everything on the ground and birds are going to come after it. Even on the day when God is making a covenant, Abram has to wait. 400 years. And they're going to be mistreated. They're going to be afflicted. Man, I don't like that. How come, would it, would it really have foiled God's eternal plan if instead it would have been, Abram, don't you worry. Your descendants, man, they're going to be honored guests in a land that's not theirs. And, and they're, going to, they're going to live in the lap of luxury for 400 years. And then when I eventually send them out, it'll be with a pat on the back and a hug and, oh, it's going to be great. But that's not how it goes, is it? Have you ever wondered why? Well, I can't speak with epistemological certainty, but here's my educated guess. When you look ahead into the book of Exodus, they're moaning and groaning about being in Egypt. But yet, how long does it take them to wish they were back in Egypt? Not long at all. Do you think they would ever have wanted to leave Egypt if they were there enjoying the lap of luxury? No. We're just fine here, thank you very much. God does not want his people getting comfortable in Egypt. God wants his people yearning for Zion. God does not make our life here the lap of luxury because he doesn't want us to think of here as our home. Our home is the heavenly city. And so we yearn for it as we go through the afflictions and trials. This passage is all about, will Abraham trust the Lord? And we learn in verse 6, he does. And it's credited to him as righteousness. And as you know, that's a huge, this is a huge verse for the Apostle Paul. And so God addresses his concerns. The two perennial things that threaten our confidence in the promises of God are the passing of time and the presence of trouble. He's already waited eight years. He's going to wait about 14 more before Isaac shows up. He's going to wait 60 years until his grandson Jacob is born. 
And 15 years after Jacob is born, Abram dies. He dies in faith. The passing of time clouds our minds. Sometimes what we think and we, and we believe and we, 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 we experience something and it's so pristine and clear that we're just certain we will never forget. And how long does it take before pretty soon we find ourselves wondering, what happened? History turns to tradition, which turns to legend, which turns to myth, which passes out of all knowledge altogether. You would think that a word like this, hey, they're going to come back here in the fourth generation. After 400 years, they're going to come back here. You would think, wouldn't you, that Abram would have told Isaac this, that Isaac would have told Jacob this, that Jacob would have told his sons. You would have thought, wouldn't you, that for 400 years they would have been counting the days. But they didn't. We get the very distinct idea that they forgot all about it. In fact, when we get to Exodus 2, you'll see they're not even crying out to the Lord. They're just crying out. And their cry reaches the Lord. They'd forgotten. How many of us forget that this is not our home? That God has made promises? That just because he hasn't given me the goods right now doesn't mean that he's forgotten about it. Like Abraham, he's given us a picture He's given us signs and symbols. That's what we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We celebrate it here once a month. But in that Lord's Supper, we have a visible token of our Lord's commitment and promise to us. And of course, the presence of troubles. They're going to be afflicted. And in fact, the fact that God draws attention to Abraham passing away in peace sort of underscores the seriousness of the affliction his descendants are going to face. And why? Well, according to verse 16, it has to do with the Amorites and their sin not being complete. Did you know that God has a wonderful plan for your life? But oftentimes, God's plan for your life includes his plan for other people's lives. You wonder why God's not always just doing the immediate work in your life? Because God is a master chess player. And he arranges the pieces on the boards. And he puts you in a position. And he's putting someone else in a position. And he's waiting on them. And he's waiting on you. And he's waiting on this guy over here. And eventually everything is right in place. We see that our God is not a vindictive, hateful God. He didn't say, you know what, I'm just going to smite these Amorites right now in anticipation of how bad they're going to become. God's not like that. We see in Genesis 6, it is not until the Lord observes that every thought of every inclination of every heart all the time is only evil continually. Read Genesis 6, and it's that repetitive that he decides the earth needs to be wiped clean. A few chapters ahead, he's not willing to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah until he goes down there and sees that there's not even a small quorum of righteous people remaining. So the sins of the Amorites, which we'll read about later, were grievous. But they weren't quite there yet. And so they're spared until the sin had reached its fullest. But in the meantime, the people of Israel needed a safe place, so to speak, to grow, to reproduce, 
and become a people. We learn from chapter 24 that if they had remained in the land of Canaan, there were two threats, the threat of extermination or the threat of assimilation because the tribes of the Canaanites wanted to marry, intermarry with them and they would have been bred out, so to speak. By taking them to Egypt, what happened is they're in an incubator where the, the Egyptians tolerated them just enough to let them be, but they disdained them enough that they didn't want to intermarry with them and they, didn't want, they wanted them off to themselves. So it was an ideal incubator. But oh, how to get them there. So we see the wheels of history turn and Jacob has 12 sons. And one of them is a is a brash teenager named Joseph who has brothers who hate him and yet still he says, I had a dream where all of you were bowing down to me. Not exactly winning friends and influencing people. And they were going to kill him. But decide there's no money in that. So they sell him into slavery. And lo and behold, he finds himself in Egypt. But that wasn't enough. Something had to happen to get the people there, so God sends a famine. And of course, all the people of Israel come down. God is working historically. The wheels of redemption turn. God has a plan. He's made a covenant, and that covenant promise is unbreakable. God is doing something. You've got to be patient, and don't forget Hold on in the face of difficulty and adversity because you don't know what God is up to next. But he does call for faith. Let's pray.